My name's Neil, if you don't know, and I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together we lead this wonderful church, the Southwest London Vineyard. Earlier this week, uh, our eldest son, uh, he's uh, 20, coming on 21, uh, we were discussing Romans, the book of Romans, um, as you do. Uh, he's been looking at this, the book of Romans recently, and we were chatting about it, and we, we, we both ended up being struck by a verse that we came across, it was in, uh, it's in Romans uh, chapter 15, where Paul writes this, he says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And it got us chatting, and we got us thinking about this, this whole idea of um, accepting one another, this whole idea of welcoming welcoming one another, what it, what it literally means is to, is to take to yourself, to take to yourself. And, and, and what Paul's doing there in, in Romans chapter 15 is he's basically telling us what we're to do. And it's not rocket science. We're to accept one another. We're to welcome one another. We're to take each other, take one another to ourselves. You know, when you look at that and you think about that, it's like, where does Paul get this idea? Well, uh, you know, where does he get this, this notion, this idea that we should welcome each other, that we should accept one another? I mean, you think about it, it's like, why should we? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I might, I might not like you very much. You, you know, it's possible. Uh, um, what's much more probable is that, you know, you might not like me very much, as hard as that is for me to hear. You know, and we sort of sit there and think, well, you know, why is it? Why is it that I should accept so-and-so? You know, why, why should we welcome such and such? You know, I don't even know if I agree with them. I don't, there's something about them. I don't, don't like the way they walk. Or, you know, I don't like some of the things that they talk about, some of their ideas. Why should we accept one another? Why should we welcome one another? Why should we take each other to ourselves? Why? Well, pretty simply, according to Paul, is because Christ has accepted us. We're to accept one another because Christ has accepted us. We are to welcome one another because Jesus has accepted us. Jesus has welcomed us. We're to take each other to ourselves because Jesus, Christ himself, has taken every single one of us to himself. And particularly as we turn our attention towards Easter, as we begin to reflect on the cross, as we uh, begin to focus and turn our attention to the events of Holy Week, what, what we see in this acceptance, this welcome, this taking to himself, what we see is that this is actually the heart of Jesus. This is the very heart of God. This is how every single one of us who's here this morning, every single one of us, this is how we have been loved by God our Father. This is how we've been loved by Jesus his son, every, every single one of us, whether we know it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not, every single one of us has been welcomed with, with open arms. Every single one of us, we, we, each one of us, we are the, the recipient of God's lavish and abundant grace. Every single one of us has received the, the wonderful welcome of the kingdom, the, the welcome of the good news of Jesus has been freely and lavishly and abundantly 
put upon us. And because we've received that, what happens is we get to do the same with other people. We, we get to pass that on, as Mike was saying. We get to do the same with other people, no matter who they are, no matter what they're like, no matter how much we agree or disagree with some of their choices or some of the things that they've done. Immaterial. We are to accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And nowhere, in my humble opinion, is this, uh, this idea better illustrated than in a, in a story from the Gospel of John. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, turn me to John uh, chapter 8. And we will have a look at that and some other things as well. John chapter 8. Um, we'll start in, um, start in verse uh, 53 of the previous whatever. So John chapter 8. Then they all went home, uh, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. As at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this as a question, uh, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Hey, you just love it? One of my favorite stories in the gospel about Jesus. Here's this, here's this woman, and she's literally caught in the middle of an act of adultery. And... Uh, in all of the scramble and the terrible humiliation of it, you know, maybe she's, maybe she's just managed, I don't know, to grab a, a sheet or a blanket or something just to kind of uh, cover her uh, nakedness and her shame. And she's maybe just standing there um, covering herself, as you sometimes see in the, the, the paintings depicting this scene. The bloke who she was with is nowhere to be seen. He's probably been allowed to, to slip out. Um, to, to kind of just discreetly go away to avoid any kind of embarrassment or shame coming onto him. And yet here she is, this, this woman, just standing before all of the condemning and leering eyes of the teachers and the Pharisees, you know, the, the curious, gawping, gathering crowd that's amassing, and they're all probably secretly rather enjoying all of the fuss and the commotion and, 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 and the utter humiliation of this, this, this woman. 
Now, it's one thing to be caught, you know, quite literally, in this case, in the act. Uh, it's another thing entirely to come immediately face to face with Jesus in that situation. And the crowd, everyone, everyone's eyes, they're all on Jesus. They're all looking at him, looking to see how's, how's Jesus going to respond? What's, what's he going to do now? What's he, what's he going to do? How's he going to handle this one? How's he going to get out of this? What's he going to say? You have a look at verse 7. They keep on questioning him. Jesus straightens up and he says to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. How does, how does Jesus respond? How does, how does Jesus treat this woman caught in the middle of this act of adultery, this woman in the midst of her shame? Does he condemn her? Does he judge her? Does he search around on the ground to find the right rock to start throwing at her? Or does he turn the attention away from her and actually onto her accusers? Does he shift the focus off her, from her, and onto those around her who are judging? As he says, if any one of you is without sin, come up, step up, throw the first stone, go ahead. And slowly, of course, you know what happens. They, they, wand, they wander off um, until Jesus is left with this woman on her own. And Jesus stands up and he says to her, he says, you know, where are they? Where, where's everyone gone? And he says, has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? But they've, they've, they've all gone. And it's right there, it's right there in, in, in her moment of complete vulnerability. As she stands literally naked before the Son of God, before the King of Kings, before the Lord of Lords, before um, face to face with the one uh, before whom all, all of us will one day stand. And in that moment of utter degradation and shame and embarrassment, what does Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Isn't it amazing? Just wonderful. And this breathtaking confidence of Jesus, this authority of Jesus, just in that moment, just in that phrase, just to remind us that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus came to save. He came not to crush, not to damage. He came to rescue. See, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. Jesus came on a rescue mission. Jesus came to, to rescue, to call unto himself, to accept, to call unto himself, to welcome, to set free a humanity, a whole human race that is so deeply and profoundly and completely beloved of the Father. And what Jesus is saying to this woman in her moment of shame right there is exactly the same thing that he's saying to us right here this morning. And it's come as you are. Come just as you are. Caught in adultery? Come as you are. Half naked and ashamed? It's okay. Come as you are. Hopeless and helpless, frightened and alone. It's all right. It's okay. Come 
just as you are. And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just leave it at that because he doesn't stop there. Um, he, he talks to the woman and, and in, in verse 11, he says, he says to her this, he says, okay, neither do I condemn you. Come as you are. And then he says in verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin. You see what Jesus is saying in his words, in his attitude, through this whole just kind of horrendous scenario that this woman finds herself in. Is he's, saying, he's saying, come as you are, but don't, stay, but don't stay as you are. Come as you are. You know, neither do I condemn you. But, but, but don't stay as you are. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is saying, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And I think it's one of the most remarkable statements about the good news of Jesus. It's the fact that we can come to Jesus, that we come just as we are, in all of our state of disarray and undress and embarrassment and humiliation. We can come in that, in that state. And Jesus says, yeah, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay that way. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, it's okay that you've sinned. You know, and what I mean by that is it's okay that we've all messed up. You know, we all make mistakes. We all break God's commands. We all um, stumble and fall. We all make some pretty terrible choices, the truth be told. You know, we, we gossip and we steal and we cheat and we lie and we, I don't know, we break the speed limit and um, we're jealous and we're materialistic and on and on and on and a whole host of other things beside. But in the midst of all of our sin, and that's all that stuff is, you know, it's, just, it's just sin. But in the midst of all of that sin, because of God's love for us and because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he accepts us. In spite of it all. And he accepts us just as we are. Warts and all. There's this incredible welcome of the kingdom of God. When, um, when Kate and I first came to this church sometime back in the late 80s, uh, you know, when half of you probably weren't even born, um, when Kate and I first came to this church, when Kate, I'm going to tell Kate's story, if she doesn't mind. Um, but when Kate first came to this church, as some of you will know, uh, she used to stand at the back of the school hall that we used to meet in. And uh, she would stand there at the back smoking, because you could do that back in the dark ages. And, um, and she'd stand at the back of the, the school hall, and she'd, you know, she'd kind of try, um, she'd kind of, she was trying to look pretty mean. Um, I thought it was pretty hot. I, I, was pretty, you know, I, thought, it was, I thought it was pretty attractive. Um, but that's another story. So she was this sort of sultry woman at the back of church smoking. So it's just very appealing. Anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. But you see, back then, you know, she, I, I think it's fair to say, I and mean, she would say this herself, I think, that she was pretty cool about this whole Christianity lark. And, um, you know, she'd just stand around at the back and look pretty indifferent, to be honest. Um, but although she hadn't given her life to Jesus at that point, there was something, there was something that compelled her to be there. She'd... She'd found something, and at the time, she, could, she couldn't ask her. She couldn't quite put her finger on what it was. But there was something that had just captivated her, and she had to be there every single week. And she couldn't keep away. And it was true a whole bunch 
of Israel College. And, um, and it wasn't long before she realized that that something was actually a someone, and that that someone was none other than the wonderful person of Jesus. And so one Sunday, she quite literally ran up to the front of church and gave her life to Jesus. And when both of us first came to this church, like so many of us all, um, we came sort of through the doors with proverbial suitcases full of baggage. And some of us had, like, trolleys. And some of us had porters and sherpas. And, you know, do you know what I mean? Some of us came with, like, a procession of trolleys that just kind of kept on coming. But we all arrived, every single one. We came through those doors with stuff. Do you know what was amazing about coming to this church when we first came? There was no, there was no bar. Right? The bar was like, low. <laughs> it was like, so low. You just kind of just made a little step over. There was no hoops for us to jump. We didn't have to jump through any kind of hoops. We were welcomed just as we were. And we happened to come um, with lots and lots of our own baggage and our own junk and our own rubbish from our short but interesting lives. But we were welcomed nonetheless. We were, we were loved in, in true Bridget Jones style, just the way, just the way you are. <laughs> By the Colin Firths of this church. We received this incredible welcome of the kingdom of God. Amazing. And you know, so often we get it, so often we get it the other way round. You know, so often we get the whole thing back to front. Let me try this, let me try this on you. A lot of us, we long for acceptance. We long to be um, accepted. We, we yearn for significance. We, we, we want to be seen as being important. And so, um, so many of us so often think that the way for all of that to happen, that, that, that acceptance and that significance, the way for that to happen is through our achievements. It's through what we do. You know, um, if you go on to the next one, it's basically, you know, if I, if I do something right, you know, if I do something well, if I achieve a whole lot of things, so we start with achievement, if I achieve a whole lot of things, if I get lots of things done, lots of really great things done, then as a result of that, I, I'm gonna, I, I feel better, I feel better about myself. Yes, I, I've, look at what I've done, look at what I've achieved. It's a, and I begin to feel significant. And if I feel significant, I think to myself, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe other people, including God, will see me too. And if they see all of my achievements, and if I become significant in my own eyes and in their eyes, then, then maybe, just maybe, I'll be accepted. The problem with this is this is the way that the culture in which we find ourselves living uh, looks at life. It's... it's um, the trouble with it is it's a cycle of law, uh, and it, it, law doesn't lead to life. As many of us have found out for ourselves, it actually leads to death. But the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is the very reverse. It's the exact opposite of this whole thing. Because in Christ Jesus, we start from the place of acceptance. Romans 15, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. We start from this place of acceptance. The good news of Jesus, like for the woman caught in adultery, is the fact that we're already accepted. 
We're already loved by God. And that's the starting place. That's our starting place. The sons and daughters of the living God. Whether we know it or not, whether we recognize him or not, whether we acknowledge he even exists or not, doesn't matter. We are already accepted by him. And it's out of that place. It's out of that place of love and acceptance. That, that's what gives us our sense of significance. I don't need to strive. I, I don't need to become or to be someone I'm not because in Christ Jesus, I'm already accepted. I'm already loved. That's all the significance we need. And then it's out of that place. It's out of that place of acceptance. It's out of that place of significance that compels me to, to, to want to achieve, to, to want to do stuff that compels me to want to be so much more. The cycle of grace, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we think we've got to change first, and then we'll be acceptable, then we'll be loved. You know, um, we'll say, you know, once I've left my life of sin, Jesus, then you won't condemn me. You know, once I've left my life of sin, then, you, then you'll accept me, won't you, Jesus? But if you look at the passage in John 8, Jesus starts with saying, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go now and leave your, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't start by saying, go and leave your life of sin. And when I've been monitoring, you know, whether you're having a way with a whole bunch of married guys, I'll, I'll assess you. And if you've done really, really well, six months minimum, then neither will I condemn you. It's not what he said. He says, you have just been caught in the middle of an act of adultery. You're standing there naked and ashamed. I don't condemn you. Acceptance, causing her to feel significance. And he says, it might be a good idea if you went and left your life of sin. And she's like, that's what I want to achieve because of the acceptance and the significance that she's encountered with Jesus. It's no accident that Jesus chose the cross as the demonstration of the Father's absolute love for you and me and the entire human race. Uh, it was a love that didn't regard death as too high a price to pay. Uh, this is a quote from Brennan, um, Brennan Manning. Uh, he's, a, he's a Catholic priest, the, the furious longing of God. And he, he writes this. He says, Paul wrote in Philippians, he emptied himself. And then he goes on, he cried from his heart, nails in his hands, and poured out his blood that we might believe his love for us. Significantly, Jesus chose the giving tree, he writes, his cross, as the demonstrative sign of his absolutely furious love for all men and women. In the words of one early church father, the mightiest act of love ever to arise from a human soul. Manning goes on, he says this, he says, How is it then that we've come to imagine that Christianity consists of primarily what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus? Because Christianity always starts with what um, God does for us. The great and wonderful things that God dreamed up and achieved for us in Christ Jesus. And just this morning, just as, as, the, as the Spirit of God, as the presence of God comes, you know, like streaming into your life through, the, through the, the power of His Scriptures, through the power of His Holy Spirit, through the fellowship of the saints. 
just as we gather together as the church. All he asks is this. The next time that you look at the cross and realize at what price you're loved, all, all God asks is that, is that we marvel at that. All God asks is that we be surprised at that. All God asks is that we allow ourselves to be moved by that and let our mouth hang open in, in wonder um, at the abundant, the lavish abundance of his grace, the lavish abundance of his mercy, the, just the, the extent of his furious, passionate love for every single one of us. And let me encourage you, let me suggest that from this moment until you put your head on the pillow tonight and beyond, um, let the focus of your inner life rest on the staggering, mind-blowing truth. Allow yourselves to believe the fact that God loves you just as you are and not as you think you should be. God loves you just as you are and not as you think you should be. God loves you, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean focus on whether he loves the person next to you. I don't mean focus on whether he loves Jackie Pullinger or Billy Graham or I have no idea who. I don't mean focus on the fact that God loves the church, or I don't mean the fact, focus on the fact that God loves humanity in some broad and general way. I mean drill it down and focus and allow the Spirit of God to minister the fact and the truth that God loves you in such a way that he would rather die than be without you. It's pretty hard for us to believe that anyone would you know, want to die for us, that we would be worth the death of anyone, let alone a holy God. You know, and um, I've come to the conclusion that I think one of the uh, challenges and uh, biggest mistakes, I think, that we make as Christians is the attitude and the mindset, which is that, you know, if I change, then God will love me. Do you ever find yourself thinking that way? You know, um, if only I were different, then God would love me. You know, I must try a little harder. I must run a little faster. I must squeeze out all those, uh, you know, judgmental, lustful, uh, unkind, critical thoughts out of my head. Let's get them all away from my head. I wasn't thinking that, honestly. You know, you know if, only I could dis- if only I could develop a discipline, like a properly disciplined, like a real Christian disciplined prayer life. You know, if only I could be more generous. Uh, if only I could work harder at serving the poor, blah, 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 blah. Then God would love me. And do you know what? When I find myself thinking that kind of stuff, which I do, it, it, for me it's a bit of an alarm you know, bell ringing because it, it means I'm on the run from God. Because when we're thinking like that, it's like what we've done is we slowly but surely close our arms so that God can't open them up and embrace us, which is all he wants to do. He just wants to embrace us. He just wants to give us a hug. And as we're kind of going, oh, I, I wish I were better and better and better, we're closing ourselves off just to the embrace of the living God. You know, I don't know about you, sometimes, probably far too regularly, I I catch myself thinking to myself, saying to myself, sort of under my breath, half out loud, you know, you you could do better. Could do better, actually, you know, fair to mediocre, you know, pretty rubbish, really. You, You don't really get, you know, and after all, you, Neil, really do know your real self, do you see I really know myself. I know what goes on in my head and my heart. And you know what? When we think like that, not only is it a huge mistake, not only is it completely theologically unsound, it's also a serious delusion. Um, and, it, and, it, and it stifles and it stunts our spiritual growth and development. Because every time we say, you know, Jesus um, 
if I change, you will love me, won't you? Jesus says, hold on, wait, ooh, time out, wait a minute, stop, 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 you, you, you've not been paying attention, you, you, you didn't look at the slides, you know, the PowerPoint presentation, like, what, what, Jesus is saying to us, hold on, you, you, don't, you don't have to change so that I'll love you, I love you, and it's as a result of the, my love for you that you'll, you'll want to change. He says this, you know, once you know how deeply, how tenderly, how relentlessly, how passionately we're loved, change, that, that just comes. But you don't have to change and grow to be loved. You are loved. And it's the love that he has for us that compels us to change and grow. When we reflect on the unrestricted, unbounded, unconditional love of God made flesh in Christ Jesus, we realize that this is the one who in this moment, when we begin to realize that this is the one who in this moment comes in and, and sits beside you, comes and sits right next to you and says, you, you, know, you know what, I, I, I know. He keeps it quiet. He doesn't want anyone else to hear. But he says, I know your whole life story. I know everything about you. I know everything about you. I know every single skeleton that you've tried to bury in whole houses full of wardrobes and cupboards and closets. I know, he says to us, I know every moment, every second of sin and shame and uh, brokenness and dishonesty and selfishness, all the stuff that's just wreaking havoc in your life. He says, I, I know all about your shallow faith what you see as your shallow faith. I know all about what you see as your feeble prayer life. He says, I, I know all about what you see as your inconsistent discipleship. I know about all of it. And yet Jesus would say to every single one of us this morning, I dare you to trust without reservation that I love you this moment just as you are and not the way that you think that you should be. Just imagine, just imagine for a moment, just imagine for a moment the, the, the crucified and, and resurrected Christ. Imagine he were to walk in this room this morning. You walk in, you know, come through the back doors, you know, and assuming we're not all instantly just like flat on our faces, going, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Yeah? Imagine that doesn't happen, okay? Just for a moment, just suspend what would actually happen if Jesus walked in. Imagine he kind of walks in through the doors and he strolls in on the back and he says hi to Harry and just wakes him up and, um, and, then, and then comes... And I, just, I couldn't resist it because literally just as I looked up, he just kind of put his head down like that. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I won't point anyone else out. <laughs> Terrible. What? Acceptance. All right. I wasn't rejecting him. I was just acknowledging... <laughs> The fact that he was, you know, he was just resting his head in prayer. In prayer, intercession, and, you know, help him, Lord. He was praying for me. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry, our sound man. And his very able co-worker, co Ben. Okay. So Jesus... Jesus has walked in there, right? And he's um, affirmed Harry and Ben in a, in a way that Jesus would um, because he's son of God. Um, 
And he's come down here, and he's come up here, and he's spoken to me, and he's taken me to one side, and, and he's, he's accepted me even though I'm naughty and all those kind of things. And he says, I love you just the way you are. Um, imagine that he's come up here, and he's on the stage, and, and he's looking around, and he's looking, he's looking for you. He's looking for you, and he sees you, and then he walks down, and he goes off stage, and he walks down, and he goes to right where you're sat. And he looks you, you know, directly in the eye, for just face to face. And as you look at him, as you look up at the face of Jesus, what, what does Jesus' face say? What's he saying to you? You know, are you picking up, a, you know, disappointment or a rebuke or correction? Do you think that's what Jesus would say to you? Is that what would be in his face? Because uh, I don't. I don't think that's what Jesus would be saying to any of us. I, I think that Jesus would look at us in a way, and I think there would be almost no words for him to express his love for you as he looks you in the, in the eye. I think there would be that... Um, pause, that sort of intense moment of anticipation where it's almost like he doesn't really even know what to say because his love for you is so great that actually all he wants to do is, is reach out and just embrace you and hug you and hold, hold you and say nothing. And I think he would come and I think he would reach out to every single one of you, no matter who you think you are, no matter what you think you've done, no matter what's your relationship with him is, I think he would just hold you and hold you and squeeze you and squeeze you. And I think he'd say how proud he is of every single one of you, how much he loves every single one of you. He'd say, he'd say, do, you know how, he'd say do you know how amazing you are? Do you know how awesome you are? I've been seeing all the things that you've been going through. I've been seeing, you know, I, I saw you last Tuesday and you were just so stressed out and you were so maxed out and there was so much rubbish and so many things that you had to juggle and yet you just stopped and you had a kind word for that lonely old woman at the bus stop. So awesome. I was so proud of you. I don't know how you did that. It was awesome. Well done. It was so great. Well done. I can just say I just love the way that you, you mums, I love the way you, you mother your kids. Love the way that you set aside just your time and yourself and any time for yourself and any of the things that you were hoping and planning to do. It all feels like it's gone on hold where you just serve and love your, your kids. Your dad's the same. Just love the way you just do life. I just love the way you, you are. Those are the sort of things I think you'd say. Love the fact that you've interrupted your Sunday. You've, you've dragged everyone out of the house at some ridiculous hour to go all the way down the A3 and travel far too far to come to church just because you want to hear the word of God preached, hopefully, and you want to worship the Lord, the living God, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. and You, you want to grow in your relationship with, with me, with Jesus. I think Jesus would just want to hold us and encourage us and just say, you're awesome. You're absolutely amazing. He's loved us from the beginning of eternity. And, and I think that he would also say, you know, you know what, no matter what happens from here on in, 
I, I, Jesus, I cannot stop loving you. What's Jesus saying to you this morning? In the winter of um, 1968, this, this priest, Brennan Manning, that I mentioned earlier, for some reason he was off um, uh, living in a cave in this sort of uh, Saragossa desert in Spain, uh, some 6,000 feet above sea level, whatever. Uh, and he, he, he'd been there for six months, uh, and he was in complete solitude. Uh, he didn't see another human face. He didn't, uh, he didn't hear another human voice for that whole time. Once a week, a chap from a local village uh, would come and drop off at a designated place, um, food and water and kerosene for this guy's lamp. Um, his bed was a stone slab. Uh, a few potato sacks served uh, as a mattress. It was sort of like new wine. Um, and um, he got up at 2 o'clock every morning, uh, and he would spend at least an hour in, in praise and in thanksgiving and worship uh, to the Lord. And he wrote this in his diary. On the night of the 13th of December, 1968, he, he, in, in what he describes as a decisive moment in his own journey with Jesus, he, he felt that Jesus said this to him. He felt that the Lord said this, For love of you, I left my father's side, and I came for you who ran from me, who fled from me, who did not even want to hear my name. For you, I was covered with spit, punched, beaten, and fixed to the wood of the cross. And Manning goes on and he writes, and he said, I, I, I looked and I stared at the crucifix for a long time, and figuratively saw the blood streaming from every wound in Christ's body and heard the cry of his blood. And he says, the longer I looked, the more I realized that no man or woman has ever loved me as he has. And I went out into the darkness and I shouted to the heavens, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind to have loved me so much? And he ends by saying, now I realize that those words are still burned on my heart and on my life. See, that's what Christianity is. Christianity is it's a love affair. It's a love affair. It's the thrill, the excitement of being loved unconditionally, of, of falling in love with Jesus, who is alive and well and present with us this morning. And he, he takes us to the Father, and he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, not to be nicer people, not to be people who constantly could do better, not to be people who try and try and try and fail and fail and fail, but to be brand new creations. Given life to the full by the breath of the Father's love. Uh, to be beacons of hope. Ignited with the flaming spirit of the living God. To be beings transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. And wouldn't it be wonderful if, if every one of us dared to believe the truth that right now Jesus loves each one of us right now just as we are and not as we think that we should be. And um, this morning the Lord's, the Lord's here. He's, he's inviting us to respond to his uh, love for us. And um, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, and the way, that we, the way that we do that here is um, if you're serving the bread and grape juice, why don't you go and fetch that? And the way that we do that here is... Um, in a moment, just around the room, there'll be uh, people with uh, bread and grape juice. 
and we'll invite you to come down in your own time and take off a little piece of the bread and dip it in the grape juice. And if you, if you know and love Jesus, if you, if you want to join us in this, what for us is a feast, and a celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you're more than welcome to, to join us.